Hey, this is Jim Fleming, and this is the Stuart Heights Fleming Sunday School Class Podcast. This podcast is a recording of our weekly Sunday School Class, as well as a few other teaching opportunities I get at my church. But before you listen further, you may want to go to teachings.jim314.com and download the student and or teacher handouts so you can follow along visually and take some notes. Thanks for listening. Come back often, and feel free to add this podcast to your favorite podcast app or to iTunes. Now let's get to this week's lesson. Good morning, everybody. All right, let's get started with our scripture memory passage review. We got Romans 6, 3, and 4 today. Nice. All right. Romans 6, 3, and 4. All right, who's got it? So I got three folks over at breakfast. They know it, right? Not even paying attention yet. That's all right. All right. Stephen, we're going to let Miss Darla go first, and I'm not going to mess with her today. Go, Miss Darla. Here we go, guys. Or do you not know that as many of us as were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? Therefore, we were buried with him through yes. baptism into death. That just as Christ Jesus was raised from the dead yes. by the glory of the Father, even so we should also walk in newness of life in Christ Jesus. There we go. It's like, it's like there's there's one more part. I'm pretty sure Jesus shows up at the end too. So, oh, that's good theologically. Yeah. Not in that translation. Uh, okay. The, the, the Baptist wrote that. Yeah, the Baptist wrote that. There you go. All right. Let's go, right. Stephen. I'm actually going to go verses 1 through 4. Oh, okay. Because... I would have to rely on someone else's Bible if somebody has a Bible that I could look at. I for Yeah. <laughs> Thank you. Surely I can still find Romans, right? You don't have to guess. All right, let's do it. All right. What shall we say? Shall yes. we continue in sin now that grace may abound? God forbid. How shall we that are dead to sin live any longer therein? Know ye not that so many of us are baptized into Jesus Christ, or are baptized into his death? Yes. Therefore we are buried with him by baptism into death, that like as Christ was raised up by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in newness of life. Nice. Bam. With enthusiasm. Imagine reading the Bible as if it were alive, right? There's a, there's a neat idea. All right, so we are uh, in chapter, you ready? Drum roll, please. Chapter 50 of Grudem's Systematic Theology. So we are, there are only, I think there are 57, 57, 58 chapters. And then there's like 100 pages of indexes and uh, appendices. And we're not, we're not, that's good enough. We'll get through the chapters. We'll be in good shape. So we're in uh, week seven of the Doctrine of the Church. Um, And I want to start off this week kind of with a review just a little bit. I don't do a lot of review, I don't think. Uh, But I want to make sure that we still kind of come back to this same uh, slide and make sure that we are completely aligned on a couple of broader definitions. So when we talk about the ways in which God gets grace into the life of a believer, the, the general Protestant view is that salvation occurs by faith uh, in Christ. 
Uh, it does not occur via accumulation of grace over the life of an individual, which would be the Catholic view. So keep that in mind as we walk through today's lesson. Now, last week we looked at what? Last week was about, was about baptism, yes. Very good. So we looked at baptism last week, and this week we look at uh, what Grudem calls the Lord's Supper. Uh, where is the Lord's Supper in the Catholic list? Yes, it's the Eucharist. So um, it's the, the Greek word for uh, this, this meal that is eaten. Uh, and really the first point here in the explanation of scriptural basis is the background in the history of redemption. So I know I've got the two passages here highlighted, Matthew 26 and 1 Corinthians 11. But I want to I first go to Genesis 2. Let's go to Genesis 2, 15 through 17 first. Because uh, Grudem sets up this concept of uh, communion with God, with food involved, is something that is a very, very old concept. And it is something that we are looking forward to in the future as well. So it is, it is an old concept. Uh, in the Garden of Eden, it is a concept talked about in the Old Testament. It is a concept obviously talked about in the New Testament. And it is something that is looked forward to later after this age is over. So uh, it, was, it was a point that I had, uh, I'll be honest, I had never even considered that it that existed before. So it was a, it was a much broader view of uh, food in God's presence. So who's got Genesis 2, 15 through 17? Mitch, you got it? Yeah. Awesome. Then the Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to tend and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, Of every tree of the garden you may freely eat, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it you shall surely die. Absolutely. And then uh, there's another section, and I, I should have made sure I had this straight in my head, but there's another section where we talked about uh, Adam and the Lord walked together and communed in the cool of the day. Right? So they, they had some conversation. There was a food element in the garden where God gives uh, man the authority to eat, which, and we all said, amen, this is good, right? Because he, he could have made us so that we did not require food. That's, that was, he, he could have set this up however he wanted, right? A lot of different ways to do this, but he, he made us so that we require food. Uh, in Exodus and Deuteronomy, several passages there that talk about um, eating food in the presence of God, eating food uh, while communing with God. And then we kind of come to the, the Matthew 26 passage. So let's go there next. Uh, Matthew 26, 26 through 29. Now when, um, you got it, Shelby? Awesome. I couldn't tell where the... It, this room is just broad enough that when somebody sits in the middle and doesn't like really project, I have no idea what direction it's coming from. It's kind of a... I'm looking for somebody who's smiling. Oh, you talked. Okay, great. Good. Uh, so let me set this up for just a second. So Jesus is about to do what? In Matthew 26, that part. He's getting ready to eat. He's getting ready to eat. Yes, that's exactly right. It's a very good technical answer. Is there a particular name for the meal that they're about to eat? The Passover, right. So, did Jesus start the Passover? No. No. What is the Passover? Passover is looking way back in Israeli history to when the Exodus occurred, right? Because God told them, you're going to have this meal. And there's gobs of rules around how to have this meal. You've got to eat it this way, and you've got to cook the food this way, and you got to, we're about to do this next. And I mean, do you, do you remember how they were supposed to eat? Did they get to sit down while they ate it? No, you had to stand up while you ate it. 
Yeah. You know why? Because you're about to move. <laughs> we're about to get out of town. And, and this is, we're going to hurry. We're going to eat quickly. We're going to move through this. But it's got significance. It's got a lot of significance. And this was what? The Exodus was what? 1400? No, no, no. That was before that. When was the Exodus? Exodus was... Somebody give me a timeline. The Exodus was many centuries before Jesus. We'll go with that. And Jesus shows up, and then He reveals to us what all of that was really about. Because it was not about leaving Egypt. It is about leaving this world. There is a bigger Exodus that is going to occur that this is a shadow of, that is going to be fulfilled in a better way. And Jesus comes and He explains what these elements, what these pieces of this, the most fundamental basic parts of the Passover are, there's bread and there's wine and there's a Passover lamb. And when Jesus takes the bread and the wine, as the Passover lamb, you see all of the elements interacting together, which is pretty cool. And then he explains it. So, And as they were eating, Jesus took bread, blessed and broke it, and gave it to the disciples and said, Take, eat, this is my body. Then he took the cup and gave thanks and gave it to them, saying, Drink from it, all of you, for this is my blood of the new covenant, which is shed for many for the remission of sins. But I say to you, I will not drink of this fruit of the vine from now on until the day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. Huh. So there's a future element at play here. Something. So not only is he, is he taking something that was historically true and telling us what this is really about and telling us that, that we're to be doing this, but there's some future element that's going to occur. So let's talk. Let's get real candid. You got this stuff? Thank you. Uh, I need the other one too. Thanks. So I went to Publix yesterday and I got the elements, right? Because you can go to Publix and you can get gluten-free matzah-style squares, which is not a replacement for Seder matzah. This is very important. So if you are an observant Jew, this will not work for the Seder. The Passover, the Seder is the, the step-by-step meal that you go through when you, have, uh, when you celebrate the Passover. Uh, and I also got uh, some grape juice. I thought Powerade, since there's power in the blood, uh, that that would uh, work really well. Told you they would laugh. Told you they would laugh. I know, right? Well, I passed the Welch's and I was like, boy, the independent Baptist in me really wants to grab that. But I'm, I'm just going to like go past because, I don't know. It, and it, so I, I joke about that, but it was shockingly strong, the pull to purchase Welch's. I don't, I don't know at what point Welch's convinced like almost all Baptists to use just Welch's, but it was, it was a real big deal. Like I, it was, yeah. <laughs> oh, there you go. There you go. Uh, so, so, so we say there is bread and there is juice, right? It's, it's really, I mean, is this not about as simple a thing as you can get? I mean, this is really, really basic. And I love the simplicity of things that Jesus tells us to do. Because you can find juice and bread in any culture. It exists, right? Does this make sense? When, when we take the elements of Christianity 
and we make them so complex that they can only exist in America, we are doing it wrong. Right? So, so let's make sure that we understand we are talking about really, really basic stuff. And the elements don't have to come in a box, and they don't have to come in a jar, a jug. What is this? A bottle. Thank you. I was on a good cadence, and then I got hung up on a word. That's the way this works. All right. The next passage is, I think it's Corinthians. Yes, 1 Corinthians 11, 23 through 26. 1400 B.C. I knew that it was 1400, and I stumbled over it. So, all right. Thank you. That was when the Exodus was. Some of you text message me very helpful information as I either uh, screw it up or don't screw it up during the lesson. So please keep that up. So we got 1 Corinthians 11, 23 through 26. You got it again? Excellent. Let's do it. For I received from the Lord that... So who's writing here? Sorry. It's Paul writing, right? And so he's going to give us some commentary about... <coughs> some other things that we need to know about this communion experience. All right, great. Sorry. For I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the same night in which he was betrayed took bread. Now pause right there for a second. All the deacons in the room feel like you need to walk forward to the front of the room at this point, don't you? Because that's, that's where we... It's like, okay, that's our cue, right? It's just the... Sorry, I had to... I wanted to move somewhere. You read it, and I was like, I need to move somewhere, because it's... All right. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, Take, eat, this is my body, which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same manner, he also took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. This do, as often as you drink it, in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death till he comes. Absolutely. So let's talk about the meaning of the Lord's Supper. Oh, actually, there's one more verse. Revelation 19.9. Remember the last passage that we read and we talked about there's something that's going to happen in the future? Uh, how many, some, our Bible qu- qu- trivia quiz. In the Passover Seder, how many cups of wine are drunk? Oh, no. <laughs> <laughs> Some of y'all are like, seven? Come on. <laughs> it is multiple hours. It takes several hours. Four. There are four cups of wine that are drunk. And the four cups reflect and symbolize the four I will statements in Exodus that God makes. I will do this. I will do this. I will do this. I will do this. The cup that Jesus drank with his disciples is the third of the four, based on where we think it was in that four. The What's that? Uh, you may have. And that fourth one, I'm not 100% convinced he did. but I understand the argument, but I'm not 100% convinced he did. But the fourth one is the one that he will drink where? Revelation 19.9. Let's read about that one. Yes, you got it? Then he said to me, right, blessed are those who are called to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, These are the true sayings of God. Yeah, so this marriage supper of the Lamb. So if you have a marriage supper, what do you think you're going to do at a supper? You're going to eat and drink, yes. And it will be the conclusion of the whole picture of God's four I will statements in Exodus when he finishes the process of taking us out, of exiting us out of the world that we are in, which is, you talk about a a long-term implementation of something that was set up 
you know, 3,400 years ago. That's, God is okay with a slow rollout. I don't know how many of you are involved in marketing or promotions, but sometimes you have to you say, on this day we're going to do this, and on this day we're going to do this, and on this day we're going to do this, and well, yeah, 3,400 years later, we're going to be talking about something that happened. And at some point in the future, I don't know how many years in the future, God's going to finish the rollout plan and exiting us out of this. And it's, it's absolutely amazing the patience that he displays in this. So that's the, that's the background and the history of redemption. Uh, let's talk about the meaning of the Lord's Supper. And I'm going, to, I'm going to move through this very, very quickly because I want to get to point C, which is where we will have fun with spelling today. So uh, B is the meaning of the Lord's Supper. So w- what, is this, what does this mean for us? Now, Grudem is going to... Um, if you flip over on the back side of your handout and it says, How is Christ present in the Lord's Supper? Number one is the Roman Catholic view. Number two is the Lutheran view. Number three is the, the mo- you can almost say the most of the rest of Protestantism. Uh, I can't say the word. Protestant. I can't say it. Doesn't work. Most of the rest of Protestants believe that. That point three. That's the way it works. What Grudem is going to describe in point B on the front side of the handout is number three on the back side. All right, so we're going we're to get to the actual term in just a second. All right, so number one, Christ's death, right? <clears throat> when the bread is broken, it symbolizes the breaking of Christ's body. This is pretty straightforward. My, this is my body that was broken for you, right? This is very, very straightforward. It's Christ's death. Number two, our participation in the benefits of Christ's death. So as I reach out and I take the bread, as I take the juice... I am participating in that. This is active engagement. Uh, number three is spiritual nourishment, which is a really undertaught element, I think. Uh, let's look at John six fifty three to 58 here. <clears throat> John six fifty three to 58. Ms. Darley, you got it? Excellent. Jesus said to them, I tell you the truth. Unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up at the last day. For my flesh is real food, and my blood is real drink. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood remains in me, and I am him. Feels like a Wes Craven story at this point, doesn't it? Because you're going, I really want to make this symbolic, but it sure sounds real. Yeah, because there's some spiritual nourishment that occurs here. There's some benefit, some real spiritual benefit to this process. Uh, number four, the, uh, what is number four? Number four is the unity of believers. 1 Corinthians 10, 16, and 17, the unity of believers. You got it, Miss Amy? Okay, double check, yep. The cup of blessing which we bless it. It is not the communion of the The cup of blessing which what? We bless. We bless, yes. So there's a we there, plurality, okay? It is not the communion of the blood of Christ. The the bread which we break, is it not the communion of the body of Christ? Communion, you know what the Greek word for communion there is? How do you spell uh, fellowship? Koinonia. It's the fellowship, it's the... It's the gathering. It's the, it's the hanging out. It's the doing life. It's the we engage actively with each other. So read it with, can you say it with fellowship instead of communion? The cup of blessing which we bless, is it not the fellowship of the blood of Christ? The bread which we break, is it not the fellowship of the body of Christ? Yeah. 
For we, though many, are one, are one bread and one body, and we partake of that one bread. One bread, one body, one big fellowship. That's the way this works. Isn't that neat? Mm-hmm. And the cool thing is, you know, he was writing this 2,000 years ago-ish. Still one bread, still one body, still one fellowship. Now you figure out how that works. That's pretty cool stuff right there. So the unity of believers. Uh, number five, Christ affirms his love for me. So Jesus invites us personally to participate in this. So this is a way that, that he can affirm his love for us. Uh, Christ affirms that all the blessings of salvation are reserved for me. I'm reading you a quote from Grudem here. When the Lord welcomes me to his table, he assures me that he will welcome me to all the other blessings of earth and heaven as well, and especially to the great marriage supper of the Lamb that we just read about, at which a place has been reserved for me. So I ask you this question. Have you ever been invited to a dinner and you showed up and your name was printed at the seat? How'd that make you feel? Like, they expected me. They know who I am. I should probably behave tonight, right? <laughs> right? No stealing of the silverware, because they're probably counting it at this point, right? This is, this is very... Not that we stole silverware in my house growing up. That's, my mom's going to listen to this. Mom, you taught me well. I don't steal silverware. It's great. Um, but we have a spot reserved, which is fantastic. It is extremely encouraging that he invites us to the table here to represent a space that we have there. And then number seven... I affirm my faith in Christ. And that's a big deal, right? We are saying we believe these things when we participate in the Lord's Supper. This is a good thing. All right, so how is Christ present in the Lord's Supper? Because He is telling us His body and His blood are present. So the big question is, how does that work? So let's poke around at this a little bit today. All right, the Roman Catholic view is transubstantiation. Transubstantiation. This is the bread and the wine are actually become the body and the blood of Jesus Christ. Now this happens, according to my Roman Catholic friends, when the priest blesses the bread, at that moment it becomes the flesh of Christ. When the priest blesses the the wine, at that moment it becomes the actual blood. This is not a... There is no symbolism here. It is actually flesh. It is actually blood. Okay? So if this sounds different than what you have been taught, it's because it probably sounds different than what you have been taught. This is transubstantiation. Okay? Trans means what? Changing. We're changing not just what the... um, It's not just the essence of it. We're changing the actual substance of the thing. Okay? Now, this is a change in substance, and this is believed by Roman Catholics. Um, I'll read you a couple of things here about this process. Uh, every time the Mass is celebrated, the sacrifice of Christ is repeated in some sense. And the Catholic Church is careful to affirm that this is a real sacrifice, even though it's not the same as the sacrifice that Christ paid on the cross. So does this cause anybody's ears to go up a little bit? Yeah, because how many times was Christ sacrificed? Once. Because if he, he was either a sufficient sacrifice or he was an insufficient sacrifice. You don't get to be both. This is a problem. For me, this is a real, real problem. Now, the, the issue around this is that you're trying to reconcile the statement where Jesus says, this is my body. It feels very, very clear, right? Okay, let's look at a couple other passages. Let's look at John 15, 1. 
What's Jesus say in John 15, 1? I am the true vine. I am the what? The true vine. He's a vine. Did he say, I am like a true vine? Okay. What's uh, John 10, 9? I am the door. Do you say, I am like the door? No, because he is the door, right? There is a very real, real reality where the only way we go to heaven is through the door of Jesus Christ. There is not another door that works. There are, it's like Monsters, Inc., right? There's gobs and gobs of doors in the world, but ain't but one of them is going to get you to heaven, and that one is Jesus. And he did not say, I am like a door. He said, I am a door. All right. There's one more verse that's highlighted. John 6, 41. Zeke, what's got? The Jews then complained about him because he said, I am the bread. I am the bread. Which came down from heaven. All right. So I got a question for you. Stephen, yours was, I am the vine. true vine and the door, door and the bread. Which one is he? Yes. Oh. Yes is a great answer here, right? Good. Now, is Jesus Christ... An actual vine. Like you go pull up a vine out of your garden. Is he an actual plant that grows out of the ground? All right. Is Jesus Christ a physical wooden door? All right. And is Jesus Christ a loaf of bread? Do you see what he is doing here? He does this several times in the New Testament. He says, I am this thing. And he does not mean that he is physically that thing. This view, to me, goes far too far. And I tried to find a picture that represented how I feel about it. <laughs> and that is how I feel about it. it I, I just can't make it fit. Because it doesn't seem consistent with the other ways that Jesus speaks in the New Testament. And that is my problem with it. We good? All right. There's more. But wait. There's more. <laughs> Here we go. The Lutheran view. So Martin Luther saw this, and he said, I don't think that's right. This isn't right. But I've got to reconcile somehow that says Christ is actually present here. So how do we say that he's actually present if he doesn't actually turn into that? Well, there's another word. It's called consubstantiation. I can't say Protestant. I still can't say it, but I can say consubstantiation, right? This is ridiculous. We all have our stumbling blocks, yeah. All right, so this is the, the Grudem's definition of this. The physical body of Christ uh, is present in, with, and under the bread of the Lord's Supper. And you go, so, well, like, like what does that mean? All right. <clears throat> if it sounds like we're doing uh, linguistic gymnastics, yes, we are doing linguistic gymnastics. We, so th here's, the, here's the reality, guys. The reality is... Each one of these views desperately tries to make sense of what the Scripture says. We're desperately trying to make sense of what the Scripture says. So here's an idea. When you look at a magnet, here's an analogy that sometimes you use to talk about trans, uh, consubstantiation. When you look at a magnet, can you see magnetism? Do you know magnetism is there? How do you know magnetism is there? Because it, it changes things, right? You get it close to something, it changes things. Consubstantiation says that in the actual physical bread and in the actual juice itself is the magnetism, the, the substance of Christ, but it doesn't change the bread from being bread and it doesn't change the juice from being juice. 
Okay. So Luther went here because he was trying to reconcile this, right? We're just trying to make sense of how this works. So, so Jesus is physically present, but he's, you're not chewing on flesh and you're not drinking blood. You with me? How many of you are going, huh? That's my best Bill Brandenburg, okay? Uh, <clears throat> so here's a... Here's a little extended quote that Grudem has about Luther. So, all right, so in order to affirm this doctrine, Luther had to answer an important question. How can Christ's physical body, or in more generally, Christ's human nature, be everywhere present? Is it not true that Jesus in his human nature ascended into heaven and remains there until his return? See, the problem with this view is that Jesus is physically present here. And, and we know that he's physically present where? In heaven, right? We know that he's there. So did he not say that he was leaving the earth and would no longer be in the world, but was going to the Father? In answer to this problem, Luther taught the ubiquity. Remember the ubiquity word? It turned out it was all about Coca-Cola. Can you imagine that, all those ubiquitous signs? Luther taught the ubiquity of Christ's human nature after his ascension. That is, that Christ's human nature was present everywhere, ubiquitous. But theologians, ever since Luther's time, have suspected that he taught the ubiquity of Christ's human nature, not because it's found anywhere in Scripture, but because he needed to explain how his view of consubstantiation could be true. So sometimes what we end up with when we come up with terms theologically is that it creates another problem. So you have you got to like, well, the, the ship's like a hole right here. We've got to plug that with something. All right, great. Well, that patch doesn't make any sense, though. That patch is not tied to something in the Scripture. And we go, don't look at the patch. Look at the boat. It's floating. This is good, right? And I will, I will gladly confess to you that my personal, Jim, your Sunday school teacher's personal theology has patches in it that I do not understand, but appear to make more sense than other patches. So let's be careful how we talk about each other's patches. <laughs> I'll just leave it there. All right, so consubstantiation. Now, the, the next uh, two blanks here are symbolic and spiritual. And the, Grudem says that the rest of Protestantism got close that time. The rest of Protestant I think I should just say it 20 times. The rest of Protestants uh, believe this. And that is not actually true. You may want to, in your notes, put most of the rest of Protestants believe this. Remember to a few weeks ago we talked about church governance structures and then it's the wild, wild west when you get to this space. And that there are myriad views on this, but this encompasses most of the rest, and he tried to make it bland and generic enough that it would encompass most of the rest. So, um, so Zwingli, you guys know Zwingli? You know Zwingli? Good. If you don't know who Zwingli is, write down Z-W-I-N-G-L-I on your paper and Google him today uh, and read about his life. Now, <clears throat> Zwingli was a bit... Uh, Aggressive, theologically, we'll put it that way, uh, was okay taking up the sword to do certain things theologically, which I, you know, we got problems with that. Uh, but he was also okay really digging in and trying to make sure that we were actually doing what the scripture said. So Zwingli looked at what Luther believed and he said, I think you've gone too far. I think this is symbolic. I think that in the Old Testament, just like the Old Testament 
Passover was looking forward and was symbolizing something that was coming in the future, I think Jesus is having us do the same thing. It is representative of something that is going to continue to happen in the future, of something obviously that happened in the past, but something going to happen in the future as well. So we, if you think about this on a spectrum, right? So on one end of the spectrum you have, we are eating flesh and drinking blood. And kind of in the middle ground you have this, Christ is present, but we're not eating flesh and drinking blood. And on the other end of the spectrum, I think of a pendulum swinging here, right? And you got this other spectrum that says, this is really symbolic. This is really symbolic. And this, this view is likely what the vast majority of you grew up with in your churches, um, which is that they symbolize the body and the blood. They give a visible sign of the fact that Christ himself was present and that Christ is spiritually present in a special way. And how do we define special? We don't know. It's just... It's special. It's not normal, right? Because you're going to go eat lunch somewhere today, and you're probably not going to take communion while you eat lunch, right? If you're in the habit of that, that's different. Uh, but you're probably, you're probably not going to take communion. I'm not saying it's wrong. It's just different, right? You just go to Outback or something. and like, hang on just a sec. We're going to do the elements, and away we go. And I don't know. It's different. Uh, but, but that's different than ordering a uh, glass of wine and eating bread uh, before the dinner starts. You see? There's something different about this instance of it. Yes, Monsieur. I think of it as sacred. Sacred? Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. So there's, a, there's a real element where God's presence is <clears throat> present in a way that is not otherwise present. And again, I, I, I struggle for right words here and just say it's special. Right? Um, all right, so that's the most of the rest of Protestantism. Um, so the next question is, who should participate in the Lord's Supper? Now, I'm going to be shockingly open-handed on this. I have views on this, but I don't know that they really matter. Uh, so the, Grudem's got three different uh, points here that would... I think I put all three in your... Did I put three in your notes? I only see two? Really? That stinks. Is there three? Okay, good. Yeah, yeah, all right. All right uh, so the first one, pretty much everybody would agree in Protestantism. I got it. I got it. All right. I didn't think about it too hard. That's what it was. Uh, most Protestants would agree that only, here's your blank, only those who believe in Christ should participate in it. And this is for the family. When, when Paul goes off, I think it's 1 Corinthians 10 is the passage that you read, right, Amy? The, when he talks about we and us and the, the one body... We only talk about the body of believers. This is not a body of believers that encompasses unbelievers. It's not the way the body works. So only those who believe. Um, many Protestants would argue that only those who have been baptized should participate. Now, there's, there's pros and cons to this, right? Because God calls us to baptism after salvation. And baptism is really the, the entrance into the community of believers, not into the body Salvation, we enter into the body of believers. Baptism, we enter into the community, into life with believers. It is the introduction. I am making public my profession of faith in Christ. Now I have said that I am like us in my belief for Jesus Christ, and we should do Jesus things together. And that then, the idea would be that you begin to do communion together at that point. So there are a lot of churches that would say... Um, that you have to be saved and baptized before you could participate in communion. Now, 
There's only one problem with that. Let's say that you go to a church that doesn't baptize very often because of physical, logistical challenges. And communion occurs before you get an opportunity to actually follow the Lord in believer's baptism. Excluding an actual true believer from communion feels really janky. It's just not, it's just something's not, something's not good about that. And the best solution that I could come up with is get baptized as soon as possible after conversion. Just obedience takes care of all kinds of our problems applying the scripture. It, re- it really, really does. Quick obedience takes care of all kinds of problems. So, so pretty much everybody would agree that only those who believe in Christ, a lot would agree that only those who've been baptized should participate in the Lord's Supper. Pop quiz, what does Stuart Heights believe? Anybody know? Belief, that's it, right. We're not checking baptism, uh, baptismal certificates. We're, we're, we're open-handed on this concept. Uh, and then three, the third qualification for participation is self-examination. Self-examination, mostly because the Bible says you should self-examine yourself, right? I mean, that's... Or, no, you should examine yourself. There we go. I was going to say, that sounded redundant, yeah. The Office of Redundancy Department, right? All right, so... Uh, so those are the, the, that's the, how do you get in? And then a couple of the questions, who should administer the Lord's Supper? Uh, somebody look up that verse for me. Where does the Bible talk about that? Great answer. Uh, it doesn't. So if the Bible doesn't say that there's restrictions on this, then we would, I, I would say that you need to be a believer, right? Let's talk, <coughs> rewind last week to the baptism comment that I made, who should baptize? It feels like you ought to be a believer before you baptize somebody else because this is believer's baptism. This is part of what the family does. So it feels like somebody that is a believer should administer the Lord's Supper. Uh, And then how often should it be celebrated? What's the scripture say? As often as you do it. And what does that mean? I have no clue. I have wrestled and wrangled and struggled and searched. and It means as often as you do it. There's no hidden special meaning behind the words. There's nothing, oh, this means this over in this pack. It just means as often as you do it. Well, how often is that? I don't know. As often as you do it. Okay, that's what I got. So, so that's the, the pretty uh, symbolic spiritual explanations of what baptism, or I'm sorry, what the communion is about. And you'll, you'll hear me use a lot of different terms. You will rarely hear me use the term uh, Eucharist for, uh, for the Lord's Supper, predominantly because it is almost exclusively a Catholic term. Um, if I were to use it, I would be talking to somebody who is Catholic, and then I would define, I would say, this is what I believe about the Eucharist. This is what I believe, and this is what I believe the Eucharist really is. So I would use this term as a way to get over here, not as a way to live inside this construct of definitions. So does that make sense? That makes sense. Sorry to use that. So thank you for coming to Sunday school today. Uh, I have several words that when I hear myself say them, I've been talking long enough. So that's good. At the center of your tables is a weekly update, so please make sure that you have written your updates there. Now, I have noticed a trend the last couple of weeks of Sunday school prayer requests, and one of them is some of you are putting things that really sound like they ought to be prayed for for a long time in the only pray for this for a week section. So, as you can imagine, we are structured in our prayer requests process. The top section is only for this week. 
It will not show up in the ongoing requests next week. That second section of prayer requests means it will show up in the ongoing. So you got a couple minutes here. Take a look over those ongoing ones, make updates. That would be really, really good. And also, we have two families who have been doing, this is what we're talking about, yep. a fantastic <laughs> job of feeding us on an extraordinarily regular basis. So I come into Sunday school, and I'm like, oh, it doesn't smell right. Because I get here when Justin and Carrie are here, and they've set up the tables and chairs, and thank you for setting up the tables and chairs. And about five minutes after I get here, one of these two ladies walks in with food. And then the room smells good. And that's what you're used to when you walk in. And what we need is we need more folks to come and help. So I'm going to let you talk for a sec about that. Is that all right? I was going to, awesome. I was going to say, I did, wasn't the breakfast yummy this morning? Yes. <laughs> so Ms. Trisha has been doing this for about two years. And I've been helping her for about one. So between the two of us, we cover every Sunday that we're here. And so we did want to ask if anybody would be willing to volunteer. We are still happy to make breakfast. I know some people really like certain things that we make, and so we want to keep providing for you guys because it really means a lot to us to give back. Um, but it would be nice if we had a little bit of help. Yes. So if we had a couple of people to volunteer to pitch in, it would be once a month. And so that would be really, really helpful to us. And so that's the ask. Let us awesome. know if you're willing to do so. Thank you very much. Um, so, again, thank you very much. This is a, a big labor of love. Many, many of our families struggle to get here without killing the children. Um, you guys do it, and you bring breakfast for 50 people. So, I mean, it's just that's crazy amounts of love being shown there. So, thank you for that very much. So, pray at your tables. When you're finished praying as a table, you are dismissed. Thank you for coming to Sunday School today.